Okay, hello everyone and welcome to Not Knowing About Poetry, the podcast where we talk in detail about poetry without really knowing much about it. I'm Joel Swan and today I'll be joined by Callie Gardner, who I'm really honoured to have join us from Glasgow. Do you want to say hello, Callie? Hi. Hi. Good to be here. So far in this podcast series, we've looked at the question of what modern poets get from Renaissance texts from a couple of different angles. But even for poets as different as Evan Boland and Richard Scott, their discovery of Renaissance texts seems linked to a kind of validation or inspiration as poets. With our chosen writer for today, Veronica Forrest-Thompson, I feel like we're going to be working with a very different sort of response to the Renaissance, in which historical literature seems both to be given a highly significant role and a status of no more or less personal importance than the entries in an, in, in an encyclopedic dictionary. Forrest Thompson lived from 1947 to 1975, and in her short life, she contributed some of the most remarkable texts of the Cambridge School, that group of poets associated with Prynne, interested in the non-referential forms of language. Neglected for some years, her work is in the process of undergoing a significant revaluation. Her collected poems and her critical work, Poetic Artifice, are now available in affordably priced paperbacks from Shearsman on which notable critical studies have been produced by many illustrious people, including Callie, of course. In 2018, Callie also edited a number of the zine Zarf, which featured a selection of contemporary poets responding directly to Forrest Thompson's work. So clearly this is a poet whose oeuvre is of significant creative intellectual interest for the present and future. Her collected poems demonstrate a constant interest in texts of the past through quotation, allusion, parody, pastiche, and other forms of referentiality. In these acts of articulation, I'm sure I'm not the only reader who sometimes feels in her difficult poetry the same lesson Forrest Thompson describes in her poem, SZ. Poems teach one that much to expect no answer. Indeed, rather than an intense personal validation, the past seems only to speak through these poems in confusingly arbitrary provocations, as she writes at the conclusion of three proper. When we pursue imaginary histories or exercise our thoughts on some mere supposed sequence, we give rise to a problem. In our work today, I'm not convinced that we are even going to find an adequate statement of this problem of imaginary histories or supposed sequence but it will be very interesting to get started and see where it leads us. So often we've been choosing to look at an old poem first or an old text and then look at a more recent piece of writing. Today we are gonna start with a, a poem by Forrest Thompson called Richard II. Um, and then we, we might get onto the Shakespeare play of that name or we might not, uh, we'll just see how things go. So um, Callie, I wonder if you could give us maybe a couple of quick sentences to orient us in thinking about where Richard II, Veronica Forrest Thompson's poem has come from. And then if you'd read the poem, we can, we can get started to chat about it and that'd be lovely. Sure, great, thank you. Um, so if you're looking for Richard II in the collected poems from Shearsman, then you'll find it at the, at the very back, um, not not even as part of uh, On the Periphery, which was 
um, her her last collection, which was published posthumously, but in the in further poems. Um, it was originally written um, for a, a an event um, uh, that was to be uh, poems for Shakespeare, a celebration of Shakespeare's birthday. Um, in 1975, which was going to be read at Southwark Cathedral. Um, and Forrest Thompson had written this poem uh, off of the, uh, the passage from Richard II, uh, Act 5, Scene 5, um, beginning in uh, line 42, how sour sweet music is. Um, and the kind of... Um, the, the very sad and, and slightly eerie thing about the poem is that it was supposed to have been performed for the first time. Um, and Forrest Thompson had died a couple of days before. And, um, you know, the, the organizers kind of weren't aware of this, even as the event was going on when it was supposed to have been, um, had been performed. So it has this kind of very melancholy position at the, at the, at the end of her, at the end of her life, um, and at the end of her work, and so it's it's hard not to to read it with a consciousness of that. Um, it also comes uh, in a a point in her personal life where she had moved to Birmingham to work as a lecturer, and she'd bought a house, and the house was beset with problems. And um, Alison Mark, in her excellent book about Veronica Forrest Thompson and language poetry, um, goes into this, uh, this biographical detail um, a bit more. Um, so yeah, that's where we are with Richard II. And I think there are a lot of other um, connections to other parts of her work and to the to the Shakespeare text that we can maybe tease out, um, but I'll, I'll start by just reading the poem now. Fantastic, thanks Kelly. Richard II. The wiring appears to be five years old and is in satisfactory condition. The insulation resistance is zero. This reading would be accounted for by the very damp condition of the building. If you come up the stairs on the left side, you will see a band of dense cumulus massed on the banister. Whatever you do, do not touch the clouds. Forever again, before, after, and always. In the light of the quiet night and the dark of the quiet noon, I awoke by a day side and I walked in time's room. To the end of the long wall and the back of the straight floor, I stepped with my ear's clutch and the dark of my day's doom. For the sight of the deep sad and the swell of the short bright bid me flee waste of the time web and the long hand on a life's weft and the grey warp in the year's cloak for a long shade laps at a short stand. The terms left, right, front and rear are used as if one is standing outside the building facing the front elevation. Specialists are carrying mirrors to the bedroom. They are stacked beneath the window three foot deep. Whatever you do, do not look in the mirror. Again, before, forever, after and always. The step to and the step back from the still glass in the long wall flung the glance wide from the old field and the brown scene. And the glance broke at the pale horse on the glass turf while the door swung where the window should have been. With the ghosts gone and the wall flat as the clocks tick, 
With the blood stopped and the bones still, I squeeze glue from my cold glove. And I turn back to my smashed self and the few looks pierce my own doll from the backlash of the time brick and the last wall of an old love. In the joinery timbers, there is new infestation and a damp proof course is urgently needed. Say a few prayers to the copper wire. Technicians are placing flowers in the guttering. They are welding the roof to a patch of sky. Whatever you do, do not climb on the roof. Before, forever, after, again, and always. Limpid eyelid. Thanks, Kelly, so, so much. It's so nice to hear it just read in a kind of, I feel like I can relax and just start thinking about it, which is maybe not how I feel when I, when I look at it on my own. Um, and I just love looking at it again. And we've, we've got this stuff that's clearly from like a, a housing survey. And you think, oh, right. Oh, yeah, she's quoting from the housing survey. But mm -hmm. am I right in thinking even in that like first stanza, it's not just a straightforward quotation, is it? Sure. I mean, there's almost like the band of dense cumulus massed on the yeah. banister. It's almost like, um, you know, the, the, there's the idea that the house is so, is so wet that clouds have started to, so damp that clouds have started to form inside it. Um, and that, that almost feels like magical realism or something to me. Um, and, uh, but also the way she describes the clouds as a band of dense cumulus, she uses this like, um, technical language, uh, sort of meteorological language. Uh, and Forrest Thompson is very good at doing that about kind of, she will pull in uh, a way of talking about something from science or from a, a specialized field um, and incorporates it into the, the, what she's talking about, the field of what she's talking about. So, and of course, her, her, a lot of her research was about uh, science, is that right? Yeah, yeah. her PhD at Cambridge was um, about poetry as knowledge. That was the title, Poetry as Knowledge. And um, it was about the use of science in, in contemporary poetry. Um, and she talked about, or 20th century poetry, I think. And so she talked about, she talked about Empson, she talked about Eliot, um, and uh, uh, kind of devises the theory of how scientific language is imported into contemporary poetry. Um, and I mean, just look, looking at those, those lines, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we, we agree the band of dense cumulus is sort of the moment where you're tipped off. This isn't just going to be a, right. um, a, a straight um, mm -hmm. copy paste from, from, from what the surveyor's given her. But in the first four lines, I'd say that's pure surveyor's language. So the wiring appears to be five years old, is in satisfactory condition, the insulation resistance is zero, this reading would be accounted for the very, by the very damp condition of the building. But even when you've got little phrases like, if you come up the stairs on the left side, even mm -hmm. that, I wouldn't quite say it's jarring, but it's like, it, it feels to me like a, a, a small shift where we've gone from um, listing things to, um, I don't know, someone providing instructions or tell, telling a story even um, that, you know, somehow leads to this, this magical world of the, of the dense cumulus, um, that, that, that weirdly scientific intrusion. 
um, which maybe comes again with the whatever you do, do not touch the clouds. So that again, that's not surveyor's language. I wouldn't, I don't think. Um, no, I mean, it's, it's almost uh, like, I suppose that could be a builder telling her what to do and what not to do. And later on, there's some, um, whatever you do, do not look in the mirror, whatever you do, do not climb on the roof. And so there's this weird, it's, it's almost between um, somebody telling somebody else how to navigate the house and, um, you know, in a kind of real world way. And then it reminds me of like, you know, a haunted house or like a kind of blue beard. You can go anywhere in the house except you can't go in that room. Whatever you do, don't touch the clouds. Whatever you do, don't look in the mirror. Whatever you do, don't climb on the roof. There's this like um, uh, fairy, fairy story, horror story kind mm. of uh, kind of element to it. And I like, yeah, I think that's a, that's a nice way of thinking of it, that we've got a mix of the surveyor's language and the builder's language. So the person... They shift into each other exactly halfway through that first stanza. And um, I, you know, I, 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 sometimes I feel like I, I, I do this too much, but the, the mathematics of this poem, the arithmetic of this poem, I suppose I should say, is really, um, is really striking when you break it down because there's, you've got this first stanza um, and then you have, which is eight lines, and then you have the two four line stanzas and then you've got a seven line stanza and two four line stanzas and then a seven line stanza and then those little two words at the end limpid eyelid but all the longer stanzas have the same pattern they all end with whatever you do something and then these um these six words forever again before after and always but they're jumbled up the two other times yeah. so that kind of encourages me to read it in these in these sections you know and um and they all um, advance the picture of the house and the kind of, um, I wouldn't exactly call it a story, but the, um, the kind of vignette, um, they all advance it a bit more, add some more detail to the, to the scene. Whereas I think the, these more metrical four line stanzas are doing something different. Well, I'd love to get into those those four line stanzas. Maybe it's worth just pausing at the very end of the first uh, stanza on that line you've, you've highlighted forever again, before, after, or after and always. So we've moved from that that builder's language, all that sort of uh, colloquial language of whatever you do, do not touch the clouds, and then forever again, before, after, and always. So is there how how would you characterize that kind of language what's what's your kind of instinct there well it begins as a sort of um just kind of jumble of of times i suppose because um, forever and always mean are they kind of bookend the line and they mean more or less the same thing whereas in the middle you've got again before after and and these are like talking about a sequence but almost as if that line is saying, you know, in whatever sequence it comes, it's going to, it's going to continue. It's going to continue to be the, to be the case. And it, it's kind of uh, incoherent, uh, inchoate in terms of time. But the other two times where she rearranges those words, um, you, you get more of a sense of, of an order of time. So the second time it's again before, forever after and always. 
and then the other time it's before, forever, after, again, and always. Um, and what really sticks out to me in those two subsequent uses is forever after, um, you know, like happily ever after, mm. um, which of course, yeah, is something that she's something that she's that she's playing on this idea of like um, finding happiness, finding the end of. Time. The end of time in a fairy story is oh, when they lived happily ever after, where time stops at the end of the fairy story. Events stop having sequence and this characters stop developing and they live happily ever after. Um, yeah, that's, and, and that's interesting. It just, it just reminds me of, of some of the things you, you've mentioned to me before um, about Forrest Thompson being a kind of itinerant academic, which is maybe, you know, quite a familiar um, form of existence to, to people in their mid to late twenties, at least who, who've done PhDs. Um, so sort of this idea of a happy ever after when you finally get that permanent job in, in Birmingham, you finally get, you know, you can afford to get the house that isn't uh, riddled with damp. Um, uh, I don't know that that, that there's something there is something fairy tale like in um, academic aspirations at the moment because uh, the likelihood of achieving any of them is so is so limited. Right, and I think at the moment with this this um, position that people find themselves in of um, uh, and not just in academia but in other in other fields and in academia it's inflected in a particular way because people find themselves moving around from city to city, you know, whatever university has the job, people will, people will go. And um, that, that kind of precariousness um, is, we often think of it as like a crisis, a problem that is getting worse. And that's true. But in a way, Forrest Thompson experience, and we think, oh, in the past, it was easier because you didn't have to have so many publications, you didn't have to have so much experience in order to get a job. But in a way, Forrest Thompson is experiencing it ahead of time. And in, in large part, that's because she's a woman. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, and you know, I can, you know, I don't want to go into like huge, in, enormous detail about her, her job struggles and everything that I, that I understand from looking at her archive. But, um, uh, you know, she, she found it difficult to, find a, a permanent um a permanent position and and um when she does find herself settling down somewhere everything is is kind of falling apart and i don't think we necessarily have to read it biographically to mm -hmm. to understand that because everybody's familiar with that idea of like oh um finally i'm i'm settling down finally i have somewhere uh, some some situation that's um, secure and then it turns out not to be as secure as all that and it feels like kind of the the the, the walls are falling down around your ears um, and 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 that's just just what this what this poem is about okay so for, forever again before after and always that's a little the little note that we're left with as we get into the slightly different uh, smaller stanzas. Thanks, thanks very much for that. So we have that first stanza. We've got a mix of languages, mix of vocabularies, uh, and 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 um, conjectural sources, shall we say? 
then it's quite a clear shift, I think. And, and maybe especially when you read it out loud, um, when she starts saying, in the light of the quiet night and the dark of the quiet noon, I awoke by a day side and I walked in time's room to the end of the long wall and the back of the straight floor. I stepped with my year's clutch and the dark of my day's doom. And one of the things that strikes me at first or that, that sort of helped me kind of see what's going on there, even if it doesn't help elucidate the meaning, is w would I be right to see this as a kind of Swinburnian sort of rhythmic pattern, um, which is quite distinctive when you, you, you read it out loud, you know, that emphasis on the quiet night, the quiet noon that runs throughout these four, stand, these, these four line stanzas, or, or most of them, there is some variation. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I found that so interesting because I'm so used to critics like Empson, critics like Leavis or, or Eliot, uh, maybe less Eliot, who, who read Swinburne as kind of the um, representative of a Victorian type of poetry that privileged like the music of lines or the rhythm of the lines over any kind of meaning of the words. Yeah. Actually, Forrest Thompson, in spite of having been uh, supervised by Empson and being heavily indebted to his work, or at least using it as a springboard for her, uh, her own innovations, that here she is uh, taking up a kind of Swinburnian approach to, to writing. I don't, know, I don't know if that's a useful starting point, but it's the most striking thing about the stanzas for me. Absolutely, I, I think it's it's very Swinburnian, and it's it's a as much as we're we're trying to make this connection with an early modern text, it's actually very very nineteenth century, and it makes me think of that. There was something running in my head, and I was like, "What is this reminding me of?" Um, as you were reading it back there, and it actually also reminds me of Blake of the the Garden of Love. I went to the Garden of Love, and I saw what I never did see. And um, you know all of that, all of that kind of thing. That's what it reminds me of. Um, but Swinburne, for sure, is a touchstone, especially at this point late in Forrest Thompson's career. She has another late poem called "The Garden of Proserpine," which is named after um, after a Swinburne poem. Um, and she's very interested in Swinburne, and um, and I think part of that is um, her perversity in terms of if she she's very in her as a critical writer she's always contrary and she's taking a position that um i think sometimes she wants to she disagrees with people and she wants to take a a strong position um against them and she says this at the at the in the preface to poetic artifice she says something like what i have to say in this book can't be served by moderation so she's saying yeah i'm, I'm stating this position in extreme terms um because you know maybe it's not as far as i say it is but that's your job to work out how far it does apply and i think that kind of explains her attitude to Swinburne and why she's so willing to jump head first in with Swinburne and also why she's so willing to like go all out with the with the with the poems and it explains 
some of what you might call the, the excesses of her style. Okay, that's, yeah, that's a nice way to see it, that it's certainly, uh, you know, an, an excessive form of um, tribute to just be taking a kind of form of, 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 of rhythm and then just using it right the way through the poem. Um, but what, I'm, I'm just, yeah, so, so we, we, we thought about that. What is the shift that's also marked there? So moving from the stanza one, which was all about, let's just say description in various forms, um, description or narration of the, the house. We've now moved to the light of the quiet night and the dark of the quiet noon. I awoke by a day side and I walked in time's room. Um, so sort of a line that says something about a kind of dis dislocation of time. The, mm -hmm. Is it, is it the quiet night? Is it, oh, so, and, it, and it's actually, there's something like a bit, like a bit like Lewis Carroll here. I'm thinking of that. Um, is it the walrus and the carpenter who say, uh, the sun was shining on the sea, shining with all its might, which was strange because it was the middle of the night. I don't know if that's the right reference here. Maybe there's people I'm missing, but the light of the quiet night and the dark of the quiet noon. Um, well, I also think of this as like a, a kind of expression of, um, the timelessness of um, like being in a being in a dislocated mental state where you think about um, uh, the light of the quiet night um, could be like insomnia and the dark of the quiet noon could be like depression um, when it seems dark even when it's even when it's uh, what it's like. And I mean, and I'm just sort of looking at my own little notes there. So, okay, so it's interesting that, you know, there's the possibility there that this speaking to quite, you know, personal issues. Like we've, I think that's one of the really interesting things I found from talking to you about this and talking about her, her background, that what seem very forbidding poems have this sort of weird, weirdly um, powerful biblical biographical resonance which as you said doesn't necessarily need to be purely biographical um but my own notes i've sort of linked that to a line later on um which is which maybe could be seen as as a kind of culmination in fact i think it is the culmination of these four line stanzas where she says i turned back to my smashed self and this is on the top of page 159 i turned back to my smashed self and the few looks pierced my own doll from the backlash of the time brick and the last wall of an old love. So a, a smashed self sort of stands out to me as, yeah, an, an expression of, of, of what you might have been saying about the, the, the desperation of the individual subject. Um, I turned back to my smashed self, that when we're dealing with this, um, light midnight or this dark noon mm. um, we're dealing with a smashed a smashed self that in some way leads us back to this last wall of an old love um which i'm you know off the top of my head what what is that a kind of mental barrier that you're thinking back in your memory to to how you divide up your life and that old love provides one marker between mm. um different periods of your your existence 
that would be my sort of quick attempt at that. Um, I mean, I, I wonder, would, do you feel that that's, that's kind of where all those lines are, are heading or is, is it a bit more meandering than that if we were to read them through? Well, I think the way Forrest Thompson encourages one to read a poem, and this is very internalized for me because it's really how I learned to read poems because I, I read Poetic Artifice um, when I was an undergrad and I, um, and I found the way that my, uh, not all, but many of my tutors read poems was unsatisfactory because often we weren't studying them in the, in the context of just being poems, we were studying them in the context of like a theme. Uh, and there was, there's something unsatisfactory in somebody who is basically more or less concerned with like narrative texts, trying to take you through a poem and you feel like there's something that you're, something that you're not getting, something that you're not experiencing about it. If you just read it as kind of like a, a strangely chopped up short story, which was, was often what I found people thought poems were. And I discovered Forrest House and I read Poetic Artifice. This was before the excellent new Shearsman edition, which makes it accessible to much more people. Um, and at the time you had to get it through interlibrary loan and I, and I made a, a forbidden photocopy of the whole thing and, and, uh, and everything. But I, I really took on board everything that she says about poetry and how to read it. And it's often, it doesn't, often it's not possible to read her poetry according to this exact program, um, which I think is probably partly because as a writer, she's trying to exceed the, the limits of what poetry has previously been able to do. But to take Forrest Thompson's methodology of reading a poem for a moment, she would encourage you to start at the formal level, which we've done by talking about the way the different stanzas divide up and how that, encourage, how that encourages us to see it as shifting into different modes. And I think that's already been useful to us in, in how it shifted from a different mode from the, the long stanza to these, to these uh, shorter, more metrical stanzas. And then also we've thought about the rhythm and um, how that recalls kind of Swinburne and this stylistic excess, which would come under what Forrest Thompson would call the phonological. Oh, Kelly, I've lost you. Read poems as. Um, so, Kelly, I, I, I just, you just cut off for a moment. You got to the word oh. phonological and then you froze. Okay. Um, uh, okay. I'll, 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 I'll start from that begin. So, um, she sees poems as a kind of series of, of layers, right? So you start with this formal layer, which we were just talking about. And then the next layer would be the phonological visual level, um, which we've talked about in terms of like the, the Swinburnian excessive style and the rhythm uh, that sets these stanzas apart. And then the next level would be um, the, uh, the syntactic level. And I think we've talked about that a bit as well with the, 
the rearranged forever after again and always lines. Um, but also, I think you learn a lot about these uh, four line stanzas as well by thinking about their syntax. Um, you know, it goes, in the light of the quiet night and the dark of the quiet noon, I awoke by a dayside and I walked in time's room. So you have this um, long, quite elaborate prepositional clause, prepositional phrase coming before the main sentence. Um, and then it's the same in the next two lines. To the end of the long wall and the back of the straight floor, I stepped with my year's clutch on the dark of my day's doom. So the, the kind of real sentence, the main sentence, if you like, is the second, um, is the second both time, both times. And I think that really encourages us to see them as parallel and to kind of see them as, as opposites, as, as pairs. Um, I mean, do, do you mean that as, as, as closely as saying like, are we asking ourselves, um, how is the light of the quiet night the same as the end of a long wall. Is it as close as that, do you mean? Right. Or uh, is it, is it more, more loose? Yeah, well, no, absolutely. And just seeing it all as presented in pairs, the light of the quiet night is obviously the opposite of the, the dark of the quiet noon, or they're complementary to each other. They're both unnatural times. And then I awoke by a day side and I walked in time's room. Um, and the end of the long wall and the back of the straight floor, you can see that almost as like the corner where the wall meets the floor. And so it's like, um, it's almost like a sort of blazon where she's describing the whole house bit by bit. Um, and then she ends that stanza, I stepped with my year's clutch and the dark of my day's doom. And so obviously years and days are, are paired there as well. Um, uh, I'm not exactly sure what, what, what years clutch is, but it could uh, have something to do with what you were saying before about this idea of compartmentalizing time with the last wall of the old love. And so she's talking about a kind of like clutch of years. And I really find, um, uh, that especially like academic time and the time of jobs more generally really sort of especially if you know you're precariously employed or you have like a series of short-term contracts and you move around because of them then it kind of like chunks up your life into this like um these various like clutches of of years so i'm, I'm really reading it as that but then that gives way to the dark of my day's doom and um you know there there are there, there are years that are clutched together and then there are a few days that are, um, that are doom. And then she goes on to talk about the deep sad and the short bright. Um, and the, the long shade and how there are, there are long periods of, of kind of darkness and sadness and a few, a few light moments where you where you see some some brightness, um, 
and I guess that's kind of what I mean, what I meant before when I was talking about it being a very melancholy poem. It's a very, uh, it's a very pessimistic, well, I don't know if it's pessimistic, but it's a very, um, it's a very melancholy view of time and of life, that there are only these, these um these short bright moments but then they swell as well don't they so so maybe they they kind of expand to fill um more time in your kind of uh in your memory and your hopes um and yeah she talks about flinging the glance wide um and then you've got the the glance broke at the pale horse on the glass turf and i really see that as three that line's being in three parts and the glance broke at the pale horse on the glass turf and that's really ambiguous to me because horses for Forrest Thompson if you think about a poem like Strike which is dedicated to her first horse um, uh, horses I think for Forrest Thompson are like a symbol of hope and escape and joy um but it's a pale horse which is which is death's horse um obviously from revelations and there's the glass turf as well which is not right it should be it should be grass with an r but it's glass and the glass throughout this poem is um is sort of heavy and, and, and dreadful. So that, yeah, that's, that is a really interesting line. And that's one of those moments where sort of we've, we've, we've moved forward a little bit down the page. Um, that's one moment where she sort of expands this, this pattern of rhythm. So, and the glance broke at the pale horse and the glass turf. So you've got kind of three repetitions of that heavy emphasis. Mm. And maybe what, what I'm interested in now, I think it's, it's I think it's really interesting to be, be sort of putting together this this image of the this, this melancholy time, should we say, in these in these Swinburnian stanzas. What I'm quite interested in is if we if we just read out the stanza we sort of skipped, and then mm -hmm. look at the the next one where it mm -hmm. goes back into survey language, surveyor language. I'd be really interested. Just wonder. I mean, maybe it would be possible if we'd be able to kind of try and take apart some of that surveyor's language because i think we initially skipped over the stuff about the wiring at the start um but i'm interested now we've got into the the, the rhythm to kind of compare the two so the stands we haven't read is for the sight of the deep sad and the swell of the short bright bid me flee waste of the time web and the long hand on a life's weft and the gray warp and the year's cloak for a long shade laps the short stand the terms left, right, front and rear are used as if one is standing outside the building facing the front elevation. Specialists are carrying mirrors to the bedroom. They are stacked beneath the window three foot deep. Whatever you do, do not look in the mirror. Again, before, forever, after and always. I've got to say, I did, I did enjoy indulging myself in reading those two out, um, seeing that real, that real shift from from the, the heavy patterned rhythm to what effectively feels like prose in 
in lines. Um, again, jarring, I wouldn't, I wouldn't quite like to use that word, but you're very conscious of that movement and it's very weird to be talking about a long shade, laps, a short stand, and then we're defining left, right, front and rear are used as if one is standing outside the building facing the front elevation. You can't read that in one voice. I'm trying to read it in one voice because I'm sort of a you know, relatively unified subject, but um, it doesn't really work. You sort of, you almost want sort of a, a group of people to be reading this out with different people doing different voices, like for the, like for the wasteland or something. Totally, yeah. It's um, it's a, and it's it's it is polyvocal, and um, she talks about this the smashed self a bit later on. But it's also worth saying, Forrest Thompson is 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 sort of preoccupied with the way that lines work in this way. She even in Poetic Artifice somewhere she takes this um, paragraph of a of a newspaper article about a new director general of the BBC, I think it is, and then um, divides up the. The language and she's like okay can we put this in a poem and what happens if we if we arrange its lines like poems what would we discover if we if we con considered it in that way and how that is a kind of um composition because i absolutely agree you can't really read it in the same voice you know your 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 kind of swinburnian almost chanting voice doesn't go very well with the um with the building report language and yet it's not, it's, it's not exactly just a building report because it's been chopped up into lines. And you're, you're paying a different kind of attention to it because of that, I think. Um, so the terms left, right, front and rear are used is sort of grouped off by being on its own line, is kind of bracketed off. And for me, that, um, that list, which lacks commas, left, right, front and rear, um, recalls a little bit the forever again, before, after, and always. It's a series of a series of directions that are just kind of jumbled in together. Um, and then, as if one is standing outside the building, um, you've got standing and building as these two. Um, that that is almost rhythmic. That line, as if one is standing outside the building, and standing and building are kind of. Are, are kind of um, positioned in, in opposition to each other because you're standing and also the building is standing, but those two standings are both kind of called into, into question. Um, and then... And that, and that recalls... That, elevation. And that stand does recall um, the, specifically the line for a, a long shade lapse, a short stand, um, mm -hmm, whatever absolutely. that exactly means. Um, so I like, yeah, I like that idea of let's chop this up and see what, see what happens. And maybe she has, mm -hmm. you know, let, let's, presu let's pr presume that she's, she has taken this out of a, a building report, um, fictional or, or non-fictional. But mm -hmm. to, to, I guess, yeah, I, I think it's interesting that you're, you're being invited to see that as poetry or in some way evocative language. Um, you know, so if you, if you throw the word standing in, if you throw the word left, right, front and rear in, the, these terms do have a poetry that you have, you can only really realise maybe by, by putting them into relation into something much more ostentatiously poetic. And there's nothing more ostentatiously poetic than um, Swinburnian rhythms. Um, right.
Right, absolutely. I love, yeah, okay, that, that's really brought that to life for me, actually. And, and that would be part of, for Forrest Thompson, the first thing that you look at when you look at a poem is, uh, is look at it on the formal level. Because if you understood a poem as, if you understood the line breaks in a poem, just to take a most obvious example, if you understood the line breaks in the poem to be as irrelevant as they are in, say, a newspaper article, which is also arranged as a column of lines, but we, we don't pay attention to where the newspaper breaks a line because, you know, it's just where it's efficient to fit the most words on the, on, on the page. Um, that's why newspapers are arranged into columns. And if, if you imagine taking the poem as if lines did not mean anything, as if line breaks were irrelevant, then you would read the poem, you would read any poem very differently than you read it um, with the line breaks. Um, and so poems are almost, are, are almost defined by their, their form in that sense. And then, you know, we read a sonnet differently than we read, you know, whatever other kind of poem. We read a villanelle differently than we read um, uh, a, a, a free verse poem or a prose poem uh, and so on and so on. But for Forrest Thompson, that is the first thing that you consider because if you don't consider that, then you end up doing what she calls bad naturalization, which is basically sort of like um, jumping to conclusions or misreadings of the, of the poem. Naturalization is what she calls the process of moving from um, a poem to a reading of a poem. So it's the reading process. And that's why I think she's so interested in these like formal devices because from a poetry point of view you could see the the this like building report as nothing as like irrelevant from a poetry point of view but what it shows by putting it into poetic form is how much of the meaning the form is generating like the form is basically generating all the meaning all the poetic meaning and that's not true for the whole poem but um, certainly for those parts of it. Now, I, I wonder at this point, because I'm, I'm, I'm finding it more and more interesting, so this is really uh, exciting. Um, we've, been, we've been sort of talking for this for nearly, nearly 50 minutes now, it's been great, and we can, we can certainly carry on and do more. What, what do you think we should do? We could sort of push ahead and look at like the last stanza or something, or we could spend 10 to 15 minutes looking at Richard II and just thinking, well, where's, where does that um, you know, lie in relationship to this. Um, what, what do you think the best direction at this moment would be? I think looking at Richard II would be great. Yeah, I think, I think that, would be, that would be really good. Okay, because um, I think we definitely get more from just looking at uh, Horace Thompson's poem. Um, but I also feel that if we look at Richard II, we'll get kind of, we'll have to do a different kind of reading, which is, is kind of um, what, we, what we should should want to do. Um, yeah. and I'm just going to check. So it's, it's, the, it's the speech that starts how sour uh, sweet music is and it runs from lines 42 to 66. So about 20, 20 lines or so. Oh yeah, okay, I see it. Um, so I haven't revised Richard II since I've taught it a few years ago. Uh, I can see my copy is well thumbed, but uh, I haven't committed the story or characters or anything much to memory. But at this point, 
I believe Richard is in a prison at the end of the play and he's being uh, stripped of his uh, title as king. Um, he's feeling a bit glum about that. Maybe in, in Shakespearean terms, going, um, going mad or, or becoming distracted. Um, and we have some very strange speeches from him from this point of the play um, where, you know, kind of, um, let's say syntax breaks down, exactly what the meaning is breaks down um, mm. in various ways. Um, but I haven't looked at the speech for a while. It'd be really interesting to have a look now and see if any of those issues are there, if they relate to Veronica Forrest Thompson at all, and um, what we can do with that. All right, so we have a stage direction that says the music plays. And Richard says, music do I hear? Ha, ha, keep time. How sour sweet music is when time is broke and no proportion kept. So is it in the music of men's lives. And here have I the daintiness of ear to check time broke in the disordered string. But for the concord of my state and time had not an ear to hear my true time broke. I wasted time, <coughs> excuse me, I wasted time and now doth time waste me. For now hath time made me his numbering clock. My thoughts are minutes, and with sighs they jar their watches on unto mine eyes, the outward watch, where to my finger like a dial's point is pointing still in cleansing them from tears. Now, sir, the sound that tells what hour it is, are clamorous groans which strike upon the heart, which is the bell. So sighs and tears and groans show minutes, hours and times. But my time runs posting on in Bolingbroke's powered joy, while I stand fooling here, his jack of the clock. This music mads me, let it sound no more. For though it have halt madmen to their wits, in me it seems it will make wise men mad. Yet blessing on his heart that gives it me, that is a sign of love and love to Richard, is a strange brooch in this all-hating world. So there's a few things leaping out at me from, from there. I mean, I think this, this idea of a kind of a, a melancholy time, which is, is, is one of the, the things that Forrest Thompson seemed to be portraying. Um, but reading from the top of the passage, the, the phrase, time is broke, um, is, is that, is that yeah. a good gloss on in the light of the quiet night and the dark of the quiet noon? Is that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Time is, time is broken there. Mm. And, um, and yeah, it's, it, you get this kind of miscellaneousness of times, which, you have in the Forrest Thompson poem as well, forever again, before, after, and always. Uh, uh, is it minutes, times, and hours? I've lost it now. Um, yeah, so, so sighs and tears and groans show minutes, hours, and times. Is that what you're thinking of? Uh, minutes, minutes, yeah. Um, and so you have this, yeah, the, this kind of, uh, this miscellaneousness of time and the, the jack of the clock as well. Um, 
And I mean, I think it's it's it's, 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 it's fascinating that he's kind of getting that from from music. So that's the first line. Mm -hmm. Music do I hear that? It's responding to the, the 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 music off stage, which presumably is is relatively relatively straightforward rhythmically, or at least has a has a clear rhythmic pattern. Um, to me, that seems to link together what we've been saying about Swinburne and that regularity, that it's, it's not some um, wild dream that upsets his time, but it's actually the experience of regularity, which seems to be upsetting him so much. And I, I don't actually know if upsetting is even the right word to describe his, his tone in this, in, this, in this particular speech, but this, this meditation at least, comes from an experience of kind of definitive um, rhythm. And I don't, I mean, I don't like to be using this word madness because it's not particularly um, what we use to describe mental ill health now, but it is the word that Richard's using to describe him, himself, that mu music mads me uh, as, as a verb there, let it sound no more. In me, it seems it will make wise men mad. Um, and maybe, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm clutching at straws or brilliant ideas, but maybe there's a sort of madness in that Swinburnian pattern, like does Swinburne mad Forrest Thompson? Um, I, I don't know. Yeah, and I think that idea of of time, whether it's poetic rhythm or whether it's like the time of the day um, is kind of, it's part of the horror and the, the brokenness of the, of the house and the, the surroundings. Um, she talks about with the ghosts gone and the wall flat as the clocks tick and that kind of makes me think of the of the clock passages in um, in in Richard the mm. Second. Um, okay, and so and so there's. I mean, if we if we're looking for kind of a direct reference, that's maybe as close as it's going to get. That they're, <laughs> they're dealing with similar similar themes. But now, now you've said like everyone approaches poetry through thematic interests, and that's that's maybe a mistake. Well. Uh, sorry about that. Um, but I think the reason Forrest Thompson has that, I think she knows how strong the temptation is to do it. And so, um, and so she almost sets up these layers as kind of filters for, for, for the, the themes to, to, to flow through. And she knows that's part of what I was talking about in the preface to Poetic Artifice before. She knows that this basically goes contrary to how you want to read a poem it goes contrary to what you feel is is natural and but so by inserting these levels you actually get a, a way of reading the poem where you kind of catch every um every every possible meaning mm. um and that's can be really frustrating as a way to to read a poem and you know i always used to do this with my students and say Put, put a new poem down in front of them and say, okay, what can you tell me about the form of this poem? And they'll be like, what, what are you talking about? We wanted to, you know, this is a poem about death or this is a poem about whatever. Um, and if you tell them, okay, tell me about the 
tell me about the, the stanzas or tell me how many sentences there are in the poem and the, the it's it but i think if you if you work through poems in that way then you you learn things that you wouldn't that you wouldn't otherwise learn um which i think we, we, we've already done in our in our discussion of this poem and yet she's called it richard the second so and we also got the passage that it's that it's uh, based on so um She's daring you to go and look at this passage, and especially because there's nothing on the surface that has anything to do with Richard II. Um, but this might also be a good point at which to talk about um, the thing that I said before we started recording. Um, in Cordelia, um, she has this bit where she says, I wish I didn't keep sounding like Richard III, except that if I don't, I tend to sound like Richard II, and who wants that? I suppose I must sound like Richard I. Um, and so you get these kind of like, she's working down through the, working her way down through the Richards. And I think by calling this poem Richard II, she's saying, yes, I wrote this while I was thinking about Richard II, but also I know I sound like Richard II in this poem. I know I sound like, um, uh, I have, I have lost my conception of time, or that something has gone wrong in my conception of time. I feel like, I feel like I'm wasting my time. I feel like I'm unhooked from time, um, and, you know, I know I, I know this is how I sound, but, um, but she's almost kind of like a, um, um, embracing that. And I, I mean, that's yeah, that's kind of, I find that quite funny because like. I think, you know, when I first, when I was a new reader of Shakespeare, I kind of felt like, oh, well, Richard II, surely that's just the crap version of Richard III. And it's, and it's not like, it's, just, it's a totally different play. There isn't like a relationship between Richard II and Richard III. I think they're both relatively early in his, in his canon. Um, but then so, saying, I, I don't, I'm, I'm trying to find the exact, oh, there it is. Um, I wish I didn't keep sounding like Richard III, except that if I don't, I tend to sound like Richard II. I mean, that is quite funny, isn't it? That sort of Richard III, known for his extraordinary eloquence, you know, known for his ability to, um, you know, persuade everyone that he's, he's doing the right thing while, while brutally murdering uh, any opponents. Mm -hmm. um, you know, surely, you know, there's a, there's a kind of weird machismo there in um, wanting to sound like um, Richard III, whereas I wouldn't say, Richard II is known for his kind of rhetorical inventiveness or, or persuasiveness, but is known for these very odd speeches about, um, you know, men mental dislocation, especially yeah, in reading. I think this is Forrest Thompson talking about her own poetics um, and her own way of expressing herself, is that she does, as, as we've alluded to before in, in, in lots of her poems and these are by no means the most extreme examples of it, but a lot of her poems are very impenetrable. Um, the, the, it's not easy to say, oh, this is what this poem's about, or how am I supposed to, to feel about this poem? Um, they're full of these, you know, references and complicated syntactic structures and formal structures and so I think what she's what she's kind of driving at in Cordelia and Richard II is um, that she's she's kind of she has this extraordinary eloquence, but she's saying, "Well, why do you think I write like this? If I didn't write like this, I would my only alternative would be to write in 
um, in this this disconnected way, this like broken mirror kind of way. Um, if I if I if I stop being Richard the Third, I will be Richard the Second, or maybe Richard the First. Right, uh, which is which, which, what she also says, and she said, and she says, um, she says, I suppose I must tell you, Richard the First. What did he do? Nothing. I take it, um, <laughs> and which is obviously a reference. I'm sure she knows who Richard the First was, but she's a reference to like, well, why didn't Shakespeare write a play about Richard the First? Um, I assume because he did nothing worth writing about. It. <laughs> Sorry, Kelly. I've just like, just like this is weird moment. This, you get these weird moments. At least I'm finding I get these weird moments with with Boris Thompson. I don't know if you've if you've had those and have moved past them, where suddenly you kind of click with what she's up to, and it's just like so silly. But yeah, she has a she has a real, <laughs> a real sense of humor. I think, and she's yeah, she is she is very like. She does have she does have this kind of like uh, absurd uh, sense of humor and a kind of um, a kind of sarcastic sense of humor, um, and it, it yeah it can come through at these really uh, at these these moments. I think a lot of people initially approach her as difficult poet, Cambridge poet, um, who basically wants you to feel like you don't understand what she's talking about. Um, but having, I think having, having spent as much time with her work as I have and having studied her, um, in the way that I have, the main thing that I come away from her work with actually is, is her like, um, is her, is her sense of humor and her, and her ability to find, um, to find a sort of perverse pleasure in the difficulty of, language and the difficulty of 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 life really mm-hmm. well i i feel like that is sort of a, a good point to if we've, if we've reached Veronica forest thompson's sense of humor that's a yeah. really good point to start segueing to a a conclusion there's sure. there's one last question i want to ask it's, it's really a bit of reading that you may have done i noticed in the book that that poem richard ii it wasn't published in um one of Forrest Thompson's collections, obviously, but it was published in his collection, Poems for Shakespeare Four. I, I just wonder, is that something you've ever looked at or, or called up? It's, when you not, it's not, I haven't looked at it myself. Yeah. Um, I, mean, uh, I guess, I, I think, um, well, maybe that'll be for another time then, because it's not easily available on, on any regular online source. I just find it so fascinating to think that you're, you know, you're in a publication that's specifically talking about a tribute or a relationship to an older poet or, or writer, if you like. Um, what you'd expect from opening up a volume like that probably isn't the poem that we've been given here, but I'd, I'd love to see what kind of company she was keeping in that, in that volume and maybe you know, what, the, what the expectations of those particular collections were. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Fascinating stuff. But I think that's that's one thing of many that there's that's open to explore in the future. Uh, Kelly, you've mentioned that poem Cordelia, which is an amazing one. We we're not going to try and get through it today because it's long and amazing and brilliant. So maybe we'll do another another session on that sometime. Yeah. But for, to come back to the question that I asked at the start, um, which was about what modern poets are getting from Renaissance texts, 
I feel like we we sort of pointed up a lot of ways that there's a relationship there. Yet she's using Richard II as a kind of um, I wouldn't like to say a starting point, but as a resource of, of, of words and ideas and potential directions. But that stands in relationship to uh, Swinburne, it stands in relationship to just the survey that she's got done, it stands in relationship to this magical realism, uh, stands in relationship to, to the colloquial chat of a builder. So uh, is, is, would that be a fair way to sort of conclude that yet she's used the Shakespearean text in some way, but only as much as she's using all of the other resources that are available to her as well. Yeah, and I really liked what you said about how um, it doesn't have any more personal importance than the entries in an encyclopedic dictionary, um, because I feel like, yeah, I feel like Forrest Thompson is not someone who tells you, oh, I read Richard II when I was young and it made a great impression on me. She's someone who is like, here I am in the library um, choosing things that that have some kind of some kind of meaning and some kind of uh, significance that are going to have that kind of meaning and significance when I put them uh, when I incorporate them into the poem. She doesn't uh, assign to she doesn't assign a sort of spiritual significance to texts because she understands that they're kind of all part of this big um, of this big series of, of 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 sources, and I don't know if that's because she's a postmodernist, or which I don't think she is really. I don't know if that's because she's like indebted to French theory, or I think it might almost be the other way around. I think that this is her view of. Um, her sort of like um, dispassionate and slightly perverse view of texts of reading as a practice and its relationship to writing. And that's why she, she writes in that way. And also why she finds French theory, um, at least in some ways, uh, relatable to her, to her, to her project. But it, it, I think it does make her a very like, um, a very unique writer at, at all times, but but especially now, she she stands apart from even from other members of the of the the Cambridge School in terms of her willingness to let you in a bit to what her writing process is like, even as the writing is um, is still just like wonderfully complex and and multifaceted. All right. Well, Callie, thank you so much for joining me today to have this discussion and for the, the preparation which we've done, which has been so, so enjoyable and interesting. Um, I really feel like I've got to know that poem, which is a second a bit better today. Uh, and I hope anyone who's listening will go away and uh, get a copy of that and read it for themselves. So thank you, everyone, for listening to Not Knowing About Poetry. Uh, look forward to talking to you again about poetry very soon. Thank you. Bye.